Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jeff Levine. I'm a partner uh, at Sidley and Austin in the private equity practice here in our New York office. And uh, apologies for the delay this morning. Of course, this morning was when we decided to have some computer challenges. So uh, we're, we're here now, though, and hopefully have a, a good session for you today. Uh, my colleague, Andrew Harper, is uh, on the beautiful West Coast. Uh, Andrew, I'll let you do a quick intro as well. Hey everyone, I'm I'm Andrew. I am in Sidley's Palo Alto office, and I'm an emerging company and venture capital lawyer. So I spend most of my time representing um, startups from early to late stages, and representing investors investing in startups. So VC funds, sovereign wealth funds, corporate venture funds. I'm so excited to talk about this this relevant topic today. Great, thanks, Andrew. Um, I would. Um... I'd like to start by seeing if I can fix my my screen setting so I don't have that bright light in the background, but that doesn't seem to want to work. So uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, I, I said, uh, or we captioned this venture financings uh, in a market downturn, but it, it doesn't have to be limited really to venture financings. Really what we're talking about is any kind of non-control investment. Uh, and so we'll we'll use the the venture nomenclature, but but recognize that it can certainly be expanded uh, well beyond the, the early stage company to anything where there is kind of a non-control situation. Um, our slide two here is our our brief disclaimer and attorney advertising slide, and uh, slide three is just here an overview of what we're going to talk about. And I'm going to start with just a little level setting and, and context on where things are in the marketplace today that has led to the deal dynamics that we're seeing. Uh, then we're going to get into some of the, the key deal structures uh, that we're utilizing these days, talk about some of the legal concepts and fiduciary duties, uh, driving decision making, uh, and then we'll also do uh, a quick uh, foray into convertible notes and safes. Um, most of the conversation at the beginning will be about uh, equity instruments, uh, but but we recognize the importance of these alternative investment uh, instruments in the context of down round financing. So where are we in the market? Uh, I didn't open my screen recently to see how much red or green there was on it, uh, but there's certainly plenty of uncertainty. Uh, the, the market ended 2022 on uneven footing. And it, what we're seeing is certainly a moderation in deal activity on the VC front, uh, but also on the growth equity front. And a lot of investors are really uh, focused on managing their portfolios uh, more so than making new uh, new growth and or risk investments. And so uh, where the new money is coming in, you know, we're certainly seeing some of the impacts of the terms that we're going to talk about, but we're also seeing those terms executed in, even uh, in transactions where investors are already in the company, but are seeking to expand um, their interest and or simply help the company uh, attract capital. Because as you see, the the number of financings um, is down quarter over quarter, uh, and the value is also declining. So it's becoming harder and harder to attract capital, and particularly large amounts of capital as people are in kind of a risk-off situation. Uh, the the valuations um, 
are displaying a continued downward trajectory. I had an, another bullet point here, but I couldn't validate it. And it was it was, seemed kind of odd to me that at the seed round, valuations are actually up. Uh, so if anybody is uh, is able to verify or validate that, that would be that would be interesting. It's not what we're seeing or not what I'm seeing. Um, and I, I I do most of my uh, venture and growth equity work in the life sciences space, but but I'm broadly based into uh, kind of fintech venture uh, tech and uh, a variety of different areas. And we're not seeing a lot of uh, heightened valuation any place in the market. And, and that's in large part a result of the public market dislocations where you had easy exit opportunities through IPOs uh, 18 months ago. And so deals that were done two years ago were planning on quick flips to IPO. Uh, you're just simply not seeing that public market liquidity. And there's been a challenge in, in the private market in terms of really seeing that capitulation on on value. And that's one of the main reasons I think that we're seeing so many of these um, highly structured transactions is that there are just major value disconnects between the the new money investors and sometimes even the existing money and the management teams who you know are looking and saying 18 months ago my company was worth five times as much what happened. So um, I would add, I, I would add yeah. on the uh, the increase in seed valuations that you that you saw somewhere. Um, I think what that might be attributable to is the, the rise in AI. Uh, all of a sudden, the last few months, there's been just a, a swarm of AI companies um, that are commanding uh, pretty decent valuations um, that may be <laughs> skewing numbers. But totally agree for for the run of the mill company across all other industries. I think seed seed um, valuations have been um, around the same. Uh, there wasn't much lower they could go on the downside on the lower end <laughs> to begin with, and so they were always risky propositions. So I think um, they're you know they're they're okay. And the seed and even Series A has loosened up. Um, like Jeff was saying, the late stage deals. Um, are just harder to get done because they're so much closer to a tangible public public company comp, and the in between stages Series B are just very challenging right now. And so, um, no matter where you land, anything after seed, um, it, this is this topic that we're going to talk about today is just relevant because you have boards and investors who have to think about it um, because that's the reality of the market. And whether you have fiduciary obligations to your stockholders or to your LPs, um, you have to kind of know what all the options are when, when you're financing a company. And so this is something that's being talked about constantly um, right now. So the, the next slide here is just uh, an illustration of, of what we've seen just in terms of both deal deal volume and, and value. Uh, and, and this is from a, an EY study uh, that's actually kind of a not not a plug for them necessarily, but if you if you click on that link, it is a manipulable um, study uh, that you can look at different sectors of the marketplace. But this was just some general guidance. Um, so, what does this all mean for deal terms and structures, uh, which is the the meat of what we're here for today? You you all know what's going on in the marketplace. Uh, I think what we're yeah, what we're focused on are enhanced kind of investor favorable terms. Uh, and that can be 
whether it's in equity financings and convertible notes in, in kind of the general aspects of financing. So, uh, Andrew, I think you're going to walk sure. through this. Yeah, happy to. Um, so, you know, as you might imagine, in, in any kind of uh, down market, investors have the ability to be a little more aggressive um, and, and they're doing that. And so these this just lists out a couple of the things that we tend to see. So in equity financings, um, liquidation preference multiples. So one and a half X, two X liquidation preferences, starting to see those creep in. Um, senior liquidation preference as opposed to pari passu, meaning the senior security, the new shares get paid out before any of the other uh, preferred holders. That's becoming more common, more common, and it's uh, one of the items on the menu for for investors. Um, these these types of lick prefs, um, you know, oftentimes, like like we'll note on the uh, the full ratchet anti dilution. Sometimes they'll be subject to a sunset. And say if the company gets through a a, a rough patch and then um, survives past then that the multiple liquidation preference will will fall down to uh, a more normal balanced one x liquidation preference. Um, you've got anti-dilution protections, which for the past many years have been just standard at broad-based anti-dilution. Um, provisions and now you're actually starting to see some some ratchet provisions particularly in the later stage companies um, the ones that are closer to to an outcome um, and the the ratchet can be whatever is negotiated um, but it's we're starting to see some more full ratchet for sure uh, meaning that the the prior round uh, the par- prior investors if the new round that's done uh, is at a price lower, then those prior rounds, they get trued up one-to-one and they just get the benefit of the new lower price full stop, um, which is pretty, it can be pretty drastic. Uh, also see some more milestones and, and tranched closings. So uh, this is something that we see uh, even in normal times in life sciences companies where investors invest uh, some amount up front. And then if the company performs and hits certain Milestones, they'll fund again in additional closings, starting to see investors um, in all industries start to implement this uh, just so they can keep tighter reins on the company and try to try to control their downside if they don't perform. Redemption rights, again, something that's unheard of in, in normal times, at least in venture capital. I know in, uh, in private equity, you'll see this sometimes even in, in good times, but uh, very unusual in, in uh, Silicon Valley. But they're creeping in again. So this is if you know a company after a certain period of time, um, investors can just redeem the shares, get their money back. Uh, well, can they get their money back, or can they request their money back? <laughs> great point. Great point. <laughs> Assuming that the company has capital and can uh, satisfy Delaware surplus requirements and and uh, otherwise. But again, yeah, no, it's, a, it's a great point, and this can be negotiated. Sometimes uh, investors now will negotiate that if they if the company's not able to redeem because they don't have the cash, which is very, very likely the case, if you'd want to redeem, it's probably because the company's not doing so great. Um, so I've seen a couple of unique structures lately where uh, investors will say, okay, if you don't have the capital uh, to actually refund us, then we get a conversion price adjustment on our shares or 
our, on our existing shares. So we effectively own more of the company. Or we can instead uh, take out a convertible note with pre-negotiated um, investor favorable terms. So uh, good point, Jeff. But uh, yeah, it's definitely, definitely in play these days. And then cumulative dividends, again, something uh, in VC at least, um, unheard of in normal times. And uh, not seeing a ton of this yet in VC, um, definitely more so on the private equity side. But yeah, just dividends that will accumulate and have to be paid out. Um, so that's that's pretty much the menu on equity financings. Of course, there, there are all sorts of other terms that, that can be uh, pushed and pulled, but these are kind of the, the, the most prevalent ones that are we see often and that, and that should be front of mind going into any, uh, any downturn financing. And then on the, the convertible side, um, of course, there are fewer levers to pull because it's just a simpler document, but um, higher interest rates, you know, even just by nature of the applicable federal rate going up, you have what used to be a totally meaningless um, interest rate of one, two percent is now all of a sudden commonly like six, seven, eight, even 10 or 12 percent. Um, and then we are also seeing those tick up over time. You know, the longer the note's outstanding, the higher the rate goes. Change of control premiums. If the company is sold before the note converts, um, the premiums that will be paid. Uh, in, in the good times, the note would oftentimes just convert at some pre-negotiated cap and then the stockholder would get paid out with the, I mean, the note holder would get paid out with the other stockholders. Um, now we're starting to see those higher just straight cash premiums come into play. So if the company sold before the note converts, they'll get a the note holder will get a two x, three x, or even even higher premium. We've seen as high as five x their investment in a sale. Um, secured versus senior and senior debt, again very unusual in VC in, in good times. Um, a security interest on a convertible note was very unusual. Um, investors viewed these as not real debt, but as um, kind of a stopgap to getting real equity in the company. Not so anymore. Um, as companies have, you know, the challenges on the horizon, um, and it becomes more likely that they will not be able to raise around that, that's going to convert these notes. Investors are starting to ask for a security interest, meaning they can control the assets of the company if the if the note matures. Um, and then there's and not one. not because sorry just Andrew just break on there not not because they um, they want to control the assets of the company necessarily but because uh, they're looking for a seat at the table uh, more so than they would have as an equity holder and you know in in all of these respects that we're talking about there there are tools that can be used in large part to bridge the valuation gap. Right where you where there's a disconnect between what the the founder or sponsor may believe the appropriate valuation is, and the risk adjusted return that the investor is willing to accept, and so you know what we're seeing are not you know onesies and twosies here where you select one of these things, but but combinations of all of these different features that you know create a a risk profile. Uh, that is more amenable to the investor, 
but also potentially creates some flexibility for the sponsor if in fact, um, or, or the founder, if in fact the company uh, technology, let's say, proves out. And so uh, I'm working on a, a situation right now where there's definitely a valuation disconnect and we've applied multiple elements here, including uh, milestone-based closings, enhanced liquidation preferences, um, actually some warrant coverage on the equity that will kick in if the valuation uh, threshold, the milestones are not hit. So, you know, these are not uh, these these are not single source uh, solutions. Uh, they're, they're they're the opportunity to create a solution that works for the particular situation. It's uh, a great point, Jeff. Great point, and especially in in Silicon Valley and in in uh, venture capital. Venture capital funds are not looking to auction off assets. It's not part of their their business model, and they just want to be able to make sure that a company is not going to maybe take out another credit facility that's going to mature and and be paid out ahead of them. And it's just going to be game over for the company. Um, it's, it's a great point. So it, it is just kind of another, another tool that they can use to, um, to have influence and, and a little more control over the company and protect downside. And Jeff touched on the warrant coverage. Um, this is something that, you know, we definitely wouldn't see too often in, in normal deals, but now here they are. Um, outside of a, you know, a, a corporate venture construct, or if there's some other commercial component to a financing, sure, you see warrants uh, in connection with notes. Um, not typical for a straight financial investment, but but we're seeing it more and more. Um, sometimes it will just be whoever's willing to set the terms. We'll get some warrant coverage. We'll get a sweetener. Um, but more and more, it's all investors in the round commanding commanding warrants and the amounts, of course, negotiable. Uh, and then there are the, just the, um, the general control provisions that can be incorporated into a debt or equity um, construct, whatever it is. You can have protective provisions or, or voting rights. Um, typically, it's, it's blocks on only the, the biggest events in the company, selling the company, doing a new equity round. Um, those sorts of things, but even these have gotten um, more more restrictive on the company. And just to tie back to the the topic we just discussed on um, secured and senior debt, now their investors are uh, getting blocks on additional debt. As a matter of course, not so in in great times. Um, more control over management changes, which again in venture capital very unusual in good times. Um, and then investors are getting creative and just figuring out, okay, well, we've got all these enhanced provisions to cover my downside. Now, what can I do opportunistically to take advantage in an upside scenario? And so I've seen, uh, this has happened in um, uh, more deals in the last few months than I've seen probably in my entire career where uh, VC investors are getting full options to just buy more shares at some valuation. You know, maybe it's um, they can buy additional shares at a 10% increase in price in the next 12 months or 18 months or 24 months. So it, it effectively gives them an optional discount if the company goes and does another round or they can pre-negotiate just to have new shares issued regardless if there's another round. They like where the company's going. So that's been an interesting development 
um, super pro rata rights, just the the right to participate in a future financing. Um, typically, it's been a you know an amount that's more or less equal to the percentage that the company or that the investor owns in the company when it goes into the new round as a way to maintain that percentage through the new round. Uh, not so. Now we're seeing um, just enhanced uh, pro rata rights, whether it's 2x or, or dollar amount, it's um, it's creeping up. Yeah, and I think, Andrew, it's, it's a good observation in terms of the way the market has evolved uh, on these fronts. And, and I think a lot of it is a result of the experience that these funds had uh, when uh, capital was plentiful, right? And they had a hard time putting their money to work in the good deals because everybody wanted it. And so there was all of this competition for the best opportunities. And people are realizing that, you know, if, if I staked this company, if I provided the capital that helped them get to this inflection point, I want to have additional rights to be able to participate in the upside because I took the risk in the in the first instance. And I don't want to be priced out of that uh, by by new money chasing. Uh, you know, hopefully we'll see some new money chasing again. Uh, and, and we'll we'll have to give effect to these provisions. Um, right now, they're um, they're they're more in the nature of of hope notes. Um, so that that's a, a a I think a great overview of some of the terms. I thought we could just talk a little bit about how how you think about what is a down round um, relative to what most people have seen historically. Um, which is an absence of these real down round financings and, and what it means uh, for a company to experience a down round. Yeah. And, and um, it is worth talking about because, you know, it's been the market has been on fire for so long that there are a lot of people in the market now, 10 year run without a real significant downturn. Um, and so a lot of a lot of investors, a lot of young VCs, um, new founders who are on their first, even if they're on their second company in the last decade, many of them never had to think about a down round. Um, and a lot of people know what it means conceptually, but never really dug into it. Um, so it, it is definitely worth spending some time on. And uh, if it's an unfamiliar topic, there's no shame in it. Like we've had the luxury of not having to de- having to deal with it over the last whole uh, run. So um, just at the most basic level, a down round is valuation going down in a company from the prior investment round. Uh, and so just to, to double click on that, if we're talking about an equity round, it's the original issue price of the new preferred shares being issued is lower than the original issue price of a prior uh, series of preferred that was issued. And so um, I think we touched about on this earlier, what happens if the price goes down? Because that's not the that's not what investors signed up for, of course. They signed up for up and to the right. And when it doesn't go that way, um, investors expect to be trued up and to have the impact of that dilution um, mitigated in some way. And that's done through through anti-dilution adjustments. So uh, the preferred, of course, is convertible to common stock at a ratio. And in in normal times and and pretty much still the case, it's going to be one to one when you uh, get your shares. When an investor buys their shares, they're going to convert one share to pref- of preferred to common, um, and that's going to be in the uh, sale of the company 
Um, if the if they would get more than their liquidation preference that they, that would come with the preferred stock uh, in an exit, if the price per share to the common is higher, they're going to convert to a common and just take the proceeds pari passu with the common stock or in an IPO, um, the preferred is going to convert to common. Um, so that ratio can be adjusted a number of ways. The most common has been uh, over the last many years has been broad based weighted average. And that's that is very typical in good times. Um, you know, the difference there between broad based or, or any weighted average and the ratchet we talked about earlier is that it takes into account the amount of shares that are issued and how much money is raised in the new round. And it's it's definitely, well, in my view, <laughs> it's a, a fairer mechanism because it actually is more reflective of the impact of the dilution that the investor is suffering. Whereas full ratchet is, is pretty draconian, whereas you, you can issue one share at a lower price than prior rounds, then that one share is not really gonna dilute anybody but all the prior investors would get the benefit of that that lower price on the one share, whereas the um, the weighted average takes into account how much share how many shares are actually issued and how how harsh the um, the dilution is. And, and as as Andrew was saying, because we haven't experienced a lot of down rounds in in kind of the past decade, even um, when anti dilution protection starts to kick in. People have different expectations about what that means. Um, even if it's broad-based, weighted average anti-dilution protection, you know, they they think about it as as price protection, right? If the price goes down, my price goes down. It's not price protection; it's percentage just protection, right? It's the percentage of the company that you own. It's the relative dilution that you suffer as a result of new money coming in. When new money comes in, you benefit because the value of your investment is obviously uh, enhanced by that new money, except to the extent that it comes out in the liquidation preference. So, uh, again, it, we're we're going through a bit of an of an evolutionary process as people start to understand uh, more completely the impact of these adjustments. And you know, one of the things that I'm starting to appreciate myself more than I had previously is. The, the the relatively negligible impact of the anti-dilution protections depending upon what your cap table looks like. And so if your cap table is kind of primarily founders and management teams who are still with the company in the common, the anti-dilution protection adversely affects them, right? The, they, they give up more of the company. But when the new money is coming in, they want to incentivize that management team. And so they increase the option pool. And so, you know, you get this kind of vicious cycle where it doesn't really pay to have the anti-dilution protection triggered. You're better off, you know, providing an alternative adjustment, getting the anti-dilution waived and say, perhaps giving people more upside. And this is where I say you can get very creative with structures now, and you could give people in those prior rounds warrants. It's really the same. It's just saying you have more upside in the event that things work out. Um, and your downside is protected through your liquidation preference in any event. So having a greater percentage of the company um, under the right circumstances as opposed to bad circumstances uh, is, is more carrot than stick uh, around these anti-dilution adjustments. So I, I think that... Um, as people start to, we, we, we've gotten feedback from an investor recently saying, we don't waive anti-dilution protections. I said, why not? 
because we don't. <laughs> they didn't have a reason. They, they couldn't even explain what it meant to them. And, you know, we're going through now and developing a, a model to show them that the difference between waiving the anti-dilution protection and then having the price ratchet down as a result of the anti-dilution protection kick in ultimately changes their relative percentage interest in, in a very, very incremental way. Uh, relative to the new capital that's coming in. So it, it is a it is a learning process for people. Uh, and we're going to have to go through you know some broken glass as, as they start to understand what the real impact uh, of these terms that they've had in their documents for years uh, actually mean. Yeah, yeah I, to- I totally agree with that. And these these um, provisions are obviously complex. There are a few pages in, the, in a charter. Um, and it's interesting to see you know, we're used to it in Silicon Valley to controlling pro forma cap tables, but more it's it's a critical document in these deals now more than ever. Um, and the pro forma really becomes a legal document more than ever because you really have to be precise on these calculations. You have to know how the terms flow into the actual Excel model. I know, which is horrifying to a lot of lawyers was for me when I started this practice, but uh, necessary evil because it's got to be right so that investors and, and the company can understand the impact of the different options. And like Jeff was saying, once you do, it's it's pretty illuminating and oftentimes other uh, better alternatives come to light. Um, and, and again, you know, when you think about how these rounds usually go, a uh, company is not doing great. And so these, these rounds are often led by insiders. And to Jeff's point earlier, it's like, okay, well, we're already on the cap table and if, if an anti-dilution adjustment happens, it happens for everybody, not just, you know, and so the investors will get their existing holdings diluted by those shares that will go to other investors, even if they're not supporting the company now in the new round. And so when you start to think about it that way and you think, OK, if an insider is going to get the benefit of the new lower price, maybe it doesn't make sense to to um, have the adjustment and it get ways. But anyway, all part of the equation and it can go a bunch of different ways. Well, and a, a perfect segue to thinking about recaps and pay to plays, right? <laughs> well done, Andrew. Uh, it's almost like you knew what the next slide was. Uh, <laughs> the um, I think one of the, uh, again, most interesting uh, aspects of th- this market dynamic is that you can uh, get so creative, and I've said it many times now, to really come up with a solution that fits the company. And often that involves restructuring the cap table uh, in its entirety. And uh, and that in and of itself can lead to some of the most uh, challenging legal issues and fiduciary risks that people face as they think about, as Andrew said, if you're already in the cap table, and let's say the board is comprised of you know, the very early stages investors and then some of the later stage investors and the later stage investors have put the most capital at risk into the company, but the earlier stage investors have the greatest percentage interest in the company because they staked it uh, when uh, the risk was the highest. Uh, you've you've got a misalignment of interest around what happens next. And we've seen this play out in um in some kind of harrowing ways, quite frankly, uh, in the in the past several months, and it's a combination of the cap table 
uh, on the equity side, but then also the other dynamics that may be at play for the company. Um, and in particular, we've had a couple of situations where there is uh, some senior debt on the company that was taken out in anticipation of being able to, you know, achieve, let's say, a clinical or regulatory uh, or sales milestone. And you know, with with COVID um, in, affecting particularly the the life sciences industry and the inability to get procedures done um, because hospitals are understaffed, there are so many kind of macro factors impacting performance for companies uh, that they're running into capital challenges that that they didn't plan for. And when that happens, you also have funds who are often now you know old and cold and don't have the capital reserve to participate in the next financing because they thought the next financing was going to be an IPO or sale. And all of a sudden, they're faced with a massive reset uh, in valuation because, let's say, that milestone hasn't been hit or capital is just that much harder to achieve, and you start getting um, these methods of, of recapitalization that come into play, like a pay-to-play uh, or a force conversion or a force conversion with a rights offering, a pull-up, a pull-through, uh, a cram-down, right? There are lots of terms that uh, are, are new to people and the documents sometimes provide for them, right? So you, you, will, you will occasionally see a charter that already has a pay-to-play built into it. If you, if you come upon, across a company with a pay-to-play built into the charter, that company already had problems, uh, right? They, they had to deal with it in a prior round, um, which may not be a bad thing. They may have resolved those, but uh, this is another situation where all of those tools we talked about in the first couple of pages can come into play. Uh, so pay to play very simply is if you want to have the benefits of the financing, you need to put up the new capital to participate in it. And if you don't put in the new capital, uh, there is a consequence. We won't say penalty, but a consequence uh, of, of not putting in that new capital. And that could be uh, the conversion of, of the of all of your shares of preferred stock to the extent that you don't participate. Uh, it could be executed through a number of different ways, right? You could have a, a existing investors who have enough of a majority to control an, a, um, uh, a, a consensual conversion, a forced conversion uh, at the election of the investors, and then have a provision that allows any investor whose shares were converted, but who puts money in the opportunity to exchange those converted shares. And for all the time we we spend in these deals negotiating voting rights, uh, it becomes very clear uh, where the relative power is in these charters when somebody has a veto right because you need either a series or a class vote um, uh, in order to achieve the next round of financing or to do an auto convert or to offer um new equity without participation rights to waive anti-dilution protection. Again, all of these terms that are kind of built into standard NVCA documents uh, are, are, are coming into stark relief against what's actually happening with companies. And so, you know, we've spent a lot of time in the past several months dealing with pay-to-pay 
uh, financings and pay-to-pay structures. And as I said, that's that's really a, a structure in which the non-participating investor uh, suffers a consequence by not putting in the new capital. And you know, there are a variety of structures. I've kind of uh, I've referenced a couple of them. Uh, but there are also a number of considerations. I'm going to run through this kind of quickly because we want to we want to hit fiduciary duties as well, uh, the, the real law stuff. Um, but the participation level necessary to get the benefits uh, is really important uh, because often what you'll see is you have to put up your pro rata amount. And then you'll get smaller investors or earlier stage investors who say, you know, I shouldn't be forced to put in my pro rata uh, I only put in $5 million originally, my pro rata now would be $15 million. Why, why should I put so much more capital at risk? And so there's a negotiation around the relative levels of capital infusion from new money, existing money, and kind of old money. And uh, you know, just another war story, we had a situation where uh, our client was putting up new money capital. It was going to be a pay-to-play round, and the existing investors uh, were adamant that they were prepared to put up new money, and and we negotiated a term sheet and evaluation on that basis. And then when it came time to invest, they put in the minimum amount necessary, and the company was short um, tens of millions of dollars because the existing investors simply didn't come through, uh, notwithstanding their uh, initial indications that they were interested and willing and able, and it was in everybody's interest. So, uh, you know, thinking about uh, a dynamic structure in which the participation and relative participation has an impact on your benefit um, from the pay-to-play provisions uh, will will potentially prevent some of those challenges from happening. Uh, but more often than not, when these are insider-led rounds, uh, it's it's a game of chicken, right? Because nobody really wants to let the company fail, unless, of course, you actually have that senior secured debt and can credit bid it and control it and reset the cap table on your own. Uh, but that's a very, very dangerous game to play, right? And what what happens when the company runs out of money? Well, they stop paying employees and employees leave. And, you know, in, again, kind of the past six, seven, eight, 10 years, um, there have been plenty of opportunities for, for high quality people to go elsewhere. And there will always be opportunities for high quality people to go to new situations. Uh, but it will be interesting as the job market gets tighter as well to see how much of the pain, you know, the employees, the management team are forced to suffer. We've certainly seen that in other cycles here where, you know, the management teams will go without payment uh, for extended period of time in order to, you know, support the opportunity to continue the business, the development, the the other employees that they need to have. Um, let's talk about some of the key legal concepts and the fiduciary duties. Andrew? Thanks, Jeff. Um, so, yeah, a lot of um, what you said rolls over in, into these these fiduciary considerations, um, because in all these deals, you're doing something that is is not going to be good for at least some of the stockholders, the existing stockholders. And so, of course, that raises fiduciary concerns and potential for claims by those who are um, being negatively impacted. 
usually it's primarily or uh, common stock is uh, being most severely impacted. Not always, but it's, you know, management, it's employees, it's people who um, would be more likely to even bring a suit than a an investor who's worried about their reputation or maybe this isn't as material for them. So really raise some some serious fiduciary concerns um, that, that we need to focus on. Um, so like Jeff mentioned, down market deals, they trigger, trigger all kinds of approval rights. Got to make sure it's not just the charter. You know, the company's got other financing documents, voting agreements, investors' rights agreements, things that need to be amended or terminated. And different parties and constituents can have different abilities to block those amendments, waivers. So really need to scrub the docs closely. Um, and then you've got the Delaware 242 uh, voting requirements, which um, oftentimes, usually is the case in a VC company, um, there will be a waiver of 242, right, for common stockholders to approve any changes to the charter. Um, the, the idea there is that you don't want to give founders or management the ability to block the company from raising capital. So it's oftentimes waived in, in our uh, charters and venture deals. Not always, though. Definitely important to look at that. Um, the contractual approvals, I just touched on the financing documents, but there may be side letters that you have with different investors that give them special rights. The founders themselves may have agreements with the companies or among one another that complicate things. So really just making sure that you cover all your bases and, and look at everything that's out there that maybe may give people um, rights to rights to block uh, the transactions you're trying to do. Lender approvals. Um, if the company has debt outstanding, there's a decent chance that the lender is going to have the ability to block what the company's doing. Not always, but oftentimes. Um, and that's in, that's actually important to think of early on because you know banks are banks and they can move slowly. And I, I've seen it many times where it's okay. You've negotiated this crazy scheme that took months to to come to terms on. And then you go to get the approvals in a last minute and the lender's got a problem with it or takes time to digest it or wants to weigh in on it. So- um, definitely Or wants to be repaid instead. Very good point. <laughs> definitely good to be out in front of that one. Um, and again, the anti-dilution rights, uh, waiving those anti-dilution rights that we talked about earlier, those are often subject to a series by series vote. So. Um, just be be cognizant of that. If you're looking to waive, you may need to get um, series votes, which is just more, more difficult and time consuming. And then um, as part of these deals, typically the board's going to be reconstituted and um, that's where the voting agreement comes into play. And you have to um, make sure you, you're getting people um, to agree to waive or amend whatever provisions dictate the, the board composition. One other observation on, on 242 um, is that, as Andrew said, you typically, in most VC deals, see a waiver of the, the class voting as it relates to the common stock. Uh, but, but 242 also um, can be utilized for series by series voting if you uh, are, aren't careful with the way you've constructed your preferred stock and have somehow indicated that it is you know, as a different class or series uh, relative to other preferred stocks. So I've actually seen 
situations where we had to overcome the fact that notwithstanding the charter provisions and even the voting agreement provisions, uh, there was a separate series vote. Now, we benefited from the fact the voting agreement said you will vote for these things that are approved by uh, you know the requisite majority. So, uh, but but it's it's an area that I think very few people are really familiar with uh, how it can be applied in practice as opposed to what we do in waiving it uh, in theory. It's uh, a great point, Jeff, and and definitely um, worth worth spending another minute on. Um, and you got to think about how whatever is happening in the deal. You may not, you know, the like Jeff said, the documents may not appear to require a, a series by series vote. But if there's an adverse impact to a particular series in a way that's different um, or disproportionate to other series, that's going to trigger a, a series by series vote under 242. And, you know, this is this is a gray area. And this is where we actually have to like as corporate lawyers. We have to think about things like case law, uh, the rare, rare instance. Um, and because this evolves too, you know, um, this is every year there will be a, at least a case or two coming out of Delaware that talks about what what is and isn't an adverse change to a series. And it can be, you know, investors can have uh, different ideas and they want to protect their interests and they can make claims that certain things we're doing are adverse are, are an adverse. And that's all um, part of the calculus and negotiation, but definitely uh, important area of focus. And, and that's where the pressure comes on the board, right, in these fiduciary situations, because, uh, as we all know, the directors and officers owe fiduciary duties to the company and to the stockholders writ large and not to the class or particular investor uh, that appointed them to the board. And that's why we spend so much time in you know, negotiating the protective provisions around what's board approval and what's shareholder approval, uh, because the board has these duties. And uh, until you face a crisis situation, uh, it's it's not uh, not a customary thing for a lot of these board members to be thinking about because they think it's in everybody's interest to you know proceed with a financing. Um, but at a point in time, Right. It can be kind of the, the tyranny of the minority here where you have a single director um, who may be the only disinterested director in the situation. Right. You've got directors on the board who uh, were appointed by the stockholders who want to put new money in. You've got directors on the board who were appointed by stockholders who have no more capital. You've got the management team whose bonus and equity depends on the new money being raised. And then you have one or two disinterested directors who may be affiliated with the fund and they were appointed by. And you started getting into real questions as to, you know, can I really get an approve a deal approved with, you know, a majority of interested directors? Um, and is the information properly shared so that the interested directors can make the decision and still benefit from the business judgment rule? Is there a duty of loyalty risk? Uh, and who, as a director, wants to take that risk? And you know, so seeing this this play out very uh, explicitly in a situation, we had two non-participating directors, meaning directors whose funds couldn't participate in a situation, and uh, two independent directors and three affiliated directors. And we had the ability to approve the transaction 
right, with the interested parties having made the disclosure and established why it was beneficial for the company, but they were not willing to take the risk of those other shareholders saying, well, look, two directors who objected were the ones whose shares were going to be uh, crushed. And so wasn't was this really in the best interest of all shareholders? And the only way we got the deal done was by modifying a term and making the proposal contingent upon unanimous board consent. Uh, we wanted all of the board members both interested in both sides uh, in both directions to ultimately come to consensus on the transaction. Uh, because, you know, ultimately having a claim against the a director who's a member of one of these private equity funds uh, or venture funds or friends of uh, is much less attractive than just taking a zero on the transaction. Once <laughs> you start implicating individuals' lives and, and testimony and, and risk of personal liability if there's a, a breach of a duty of loyalty, um, it, it really forces people to the table to reach consensus um, and it does, as I say, kind of the tyranny of the minority have a lot of opportunity for uh, bad actors to have holdout value and you end up in standoffs. Uh, and that often doesn't result in the right thing being done for the company, depending upon what you think is right. Um, so uh, I, I want to leave a little bit of time here at the end uh, just to see if we have any questions, although I don't see anything that has come up in the Q&A. Um, we've got the the slides that uh, that I'll run through quickly so that they'll actually show up on the video. But there's other elements of the the fiduciary duties and the standard of care uh, and standard of judicial review. Uh, and then I think this is you know kind of the money slide, um, which is the ways to mitigate the risk. And it's kind of what I've talked about, which is having independent board members, having an independent committee make the decision. Finding independent members can be a challenge. Uh, you can have a majority of the minority vote and ultimately say uh, if the minority shareholders have an opportunity to be heard and approve the transaction and determine that it's in their interest, uh, you know, that that's good protection for the board. I, Jeff, I would just jump in and note that on, on the independent board committee, I mean, for startups and venture backed companies, it's often the case that every single director is interested. You know, when you do these rounds, it's primarily the common stock that's getting crushed. And so you're going to need to do um, management top up grants uh, in connection with the financing to keep management around, keep them incentivized. Maybe you need to do a management carve out plan to give them cash just straight up and an exit. So it's it's very often the case uh, that you don't have anyone who's disinterested around the table and good luck trying to get someone to jump in at that moment and take on like, the liability of uh, having to approve something. So it's um, bringing in a disinterested director at the last minute often is not possible. And so that's why these things are really important because um, you know they come up in almost almost every every deal like this that I see. And, so and I, when you when you end up with not having a disinterested member of the board, these other things come into play. You negotiate the terms. You're very careful about how you document the decision-making process. You use an off rights offering. Um, I think some people will argue that those rights offerings end up being a bit illusory because uh, there's no real ability for people to participate if you make the thresholds too high or too painful. Uh, Disclosure is helpful. 
uh, but disclosure is you know, most helpful in the context of giving people an opportunity to vote uh, on it. And uh, the key is is good process and good records uh, to demonstrate, at least if you if you do end up in a situation where you have to defend the board's actions, uh, they, they've got the record on their side. I, I skipped over one here, which is um, the well, two, I guess, the market check and the valuation backup. And I skipped over those because nobody ever does it. You know, you should. It's the best indication. And it just people get so wrapped up with running their businesses and thinking that their investors will be there that they fail to do a good market check. And, um, you know, you don't have a way to validate the valuation, which often leads to alternative instruments like convertible notes and safes. Um which which we also refer to as kick the can docs, right? You are deferring decision-making on valuation uh, by, by putting in debt or um, these simple agreements for future equity. Um, I don't want to spend uh, the last two minutes uh, running through these so quickly. So we'll, we'll, we'll leave it out there uh, for, for people to consider. And uh, if there are any questions, uh, now would be the time. Uh, otherwise, we'll uh, we'll let you go, unless Andrew, you have any other observations before we go to Q and A. No, uh, Q and A sounds great. Well, and seeing none, I guess we've answered everybody's questions that they might have had. Those we must have been really thorough, Jeff. Nice, <laughs> well done, well done. So uh, thank you, Andrew. Um, thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And uh, you know, feel free to reach out to either of us if, uh, if you have questions. Noah, back to you. Great, everyone. So seeing no questions as well, I'll say thank you to our speakers and thank you to our attendees. And with that being said, I wish everyone a great rest of their day. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone.